Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Kind. M.I.P. With Masamela Matsumo. Mark Thompson. Make It Kind. Get woke. As you all heard, like the rest of us did just the other day, when President Biden talked about doubling the pledge of shots in arms for his first 100 days. He says he's actually done that twice over. But it causes some of us to wonder whether there has been equity and parity in that regard when it comes to vaccinations. And so what we want to highlight today is a publication, the latest publication by the Russell Sage Foundation entitled Plessy versus Ferguson, the legacy of separate but equal after 125 years. Doesn't feel like 125 years, feels like it's happening right now, but we'll we'll get into that. Our very special guest today is one of the uh, co-authors, co-contributors to this piece. She is Dean and Professor of the L. Douglas Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs at Virginia Commonwealth University an internationally recognized expert on social equity and elected fellow of the congressionally chartered National Academy of Public Administration and is past president of the American Society for Public Administration. She is also vice president of the Network of Associated Schools of Public Policy, Affairs and Administration and will begin her presidential term in October of this year. She's written Global Equity in Administration, Why Research Methods Matter, Race and social equity, a nervous area of government and cultural competency for administrators. Her research has been funded by several organizations, including, as we spoke of, the Russell Sage Foundation, the Kellogg Foundation, the Smith Richardson Foundation, the MDRC and the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. We welcome Dean and Dr. Susan T. Gooden to make it plain. Dr. Gooden, how are you? 
I'm doing well, Reverend Thompson. Thank you for the opportunity today. And glad you could be here. I pray that you and yours are remaining healthy and safe in this crisis. Absolutely. We're hanging in there. Amen. Well, that's good. Good to know. Plessy versus Ferguson and the legacy of separate but equal after 125 years. Um, talk to us about this submission, this writing in general. Um, I know it's a whole edition. And then I want to zero in on your research when it comes to uh, vaccine equity. But what brought this about? Obviously, it is 20, 125 years, but beyond the anniversary, uh, what brought about the decision to take a look at Plessy versus Ferguson? So this is actually the second volume that we've done with the Russell Sage Foundation. The first one we did was looking at the 50th anniversary of the Kerner Commission report a few years ago. And the this, this second volume, which is looking at the legacy of separate but equal after 125 years, really calls into question what has been the historical implications of the Plessy case. And most importantly, how uh, are those implications still evident today? And so, as you mentioned, um, we have several contributors to this volume, a wide array of social scientists, economists, historians, political scientists, public administrators that my co-editors and myself, which include John Powell at University of California, Berkeley, and Sam Myers at the University of Minnesota uh, at the Roy Wilkins Center. So it's really an opportunity to re-examine the legacy of the case. I know it deals with a lot of issues, criminal justice, on and on, but you are focusing some of your work on vaccine distribution, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. So one of the things that we are doing through the Research Institute for Social Equity at the Wilder School is assisting the Commonwealth of Virginia relative to equity and vaccine distribution. So one of the things that you will notice is that when we first had to think about vaccine allocation, we followed the data, right? So we said, those who are living in long-term care facilities, go to the front of the line. Those who are working in healthcare, go to the front of the line. We should have done that. We also said, hey, if you're over 65, go to the front of the line. Why? Because the data showed us that disproportionately, these individuals were being infected and dying from the coronavirus. But what was interesting, even though we had a data-driven approach, when it came to black and brown communities that were also disproportionately uh, dying from the coronavirus and being hospitalized, that was nowhere concretely in our policy to say in any of those phases, we didn't say black and brown communities, because you are more likely to um, be infected and die from the vaccine, go to the front of the line. And so one of the things we've been doing is trying to assist the Commonwealth of Virginia and thinking through the allocation strategy. Because one of the things that we've seen is that, for example, about 70% of individuals who have received the vaccine in the Commonwealth of Virginia are white, although they only contracted COVID at about 52%. All the, the cases were about 52%. And so there's been huge disparities between who's getting COVID and who's getting the vaccine. So, yeah. So then that formula didn't work then, did it? To say those who were seniors and those who were medical workers, obviously they are black and brown folk who are seniors and who are medical workers as well, right? How, how did that miss? So absolutely. So there is, we had categories of people um, and those categories we should have had. Um, but the problem is we were not consistent because we did not have a category of black and brown individuals to say, um, if you are 
a member of a black and brown community, because we know that your community is disproportionately impacted, then we need to make sure that we are locating vaccine vaccination sites in communities. We needed to have all of this in place at the beginning. And as we've seen typically over time, it becomes sort of a secondary concern. And so that's one of the things that we have been working with. And, you know, I know you and your viewers are familiar with some of the things that that have happened relative to folks living outside of the area coming in and getting the vaccine and in front of the folks in the community, black and brown communities where the vaccination was intended. Mm. So that's been one of the things that um, we've been working on, as well as some of the vaccine hesitancy issues, making sure that we're reaching out to communities and uh, improving awareness and making sure, again, that there is access. So do we know how much of the disparity is due to hesitancy versus discrimination or lack of equity? Can we tell? So the interestingly enough, um, the narrative around hesitancy has largely been that black and brown communities are reluctant to get the vaccine. The truth of the matter is that uh, if we look at across all racial and ethnic groups, um, those who are hardcore saying I absolutely will not get the vaccine under any condition are about 16% of all groups. And we don't have wide variation there. The group that is the most unlikely to get the vaccine at this point, the most vaccine hesitant, are actually um, white Americans who live in rural areas. Those individuals are the most vaccine hesitant. Um, and so what we're seeing with black and brown communities is that we're not seeing a disparities, um, particularly in those over 65 who are willing to get the vaccine. Um, and so I, I think it's very important. Yes, there is vaccine hesitancy in all communities, um, but there's not disproportionately vaccine hesitancy in black and brown communities. That's interesting because all and that sound that sounds like a whole nother issue because all mm -hmm. that's reported on is our hesitancy. It's just exactly. it's just a black thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's believable because of our history. Um, and I've talked with a, a number of, of black clinicians and I think it was the president Meharry who described it responsibly as our our rational apprehension when it comes to these things. But you're the first person to say to me that the greatest hesitancy, hesitancy is not amongst us, but um, amongst rural whites in those communities. So then, so that answers my question. Then obviously the disparity in vaccination is not a result of hesitancy. So can, can we codify um, what it is? Is it simply, we were not put as African-Americans in that early category? Uh, is it that people are coming in from out of town, everywhere else getting these vaccines? Is it that people are jumping us in line or or is is it would you say it's benign, the disparity or has was there anything deliberate happening mm -hmm. that prevented us from getting it as we should? Were there decisions made to prevent us from getting it? So I think this all ties back to this is a great way to sort of tie back to the legacy of Plessy and separate but equal. OK, because, you know, what we're what we're seeing today doesn't operate in an independent historical vacuum. And so one of the things that happened in the Plessy decision after 1896 is that there was a ruling essentially that um, and this was, of course, dealing with Homer Plessy, who at the time was 30 years old. He was a term that we don't use anymore, an octoroon, uh, meaning that he was seven eighths white. And the question was, he had sat in the a white railway car and uh, but could fully uh, pay the first class fare. 
And so the question was, you know, could he sit there or not? And of course, he was arrested and, and, and fined. So the Plessy versus Ferguson ruling in 1896 said that the upheld the Separate Car Act and said that um, it did not violate the 14th Amendment relative to due process. So it really established what became known as separate but equal. So what happened right after that then is that we became largely a cradle to grave segregated society. So blacks and whites born in separate hospitals, buried in separate cemeteries and having a separate experience in day to day life um, and, and, and many things, whether we talked about telephone booths, hospitals, swimming pools, uh, movie theaters, employment options, you know, you name it, uh, there were two systems in place. So that system was in place uh, legally, and that's very important to keep in mind, legally for the next six years until the premise was essentially overturned in the two Brown decisions, which of course there was still even delay in the all delivered speed with that. And so you already had within that a two tiered health system. And so one of the things that we have to keep in mind when we're thinking about vaccine hesitancy and access issues, so then that brings to mind the issues like the Tuskegee experience, um, the syphilis experience. Why is that? So people say, well, why is there hesitancy among black and brown communities? Because there is, quite frankly, a lack of trust. And why is there a lack of trust? Because that trust has been broken uh, time and time again across the years in multiple sectors. And so when you have rulings like Plessy, and we think about the implications of that, because not only did Plessy establish separate but equal, and of course we all know the equal was not upheld because there was not sufficient political willpower to enforce the equal part, but we had political willpower to enforce the separate part, then we find over time we just continue to have a continued concentration of this legacy and also a legacy relative to identity because Plessy was not able to self-identify as he may have wanted in terms of being uh, looking white, but the state had decided that you are indeed black. So even the notion of racial identity was taken out of one's individual hands with the Plessy ruling. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you all about the All Revved Up podcast distributed by GBH. The All Revved Up podcast explores the intersections of faith, politics, and culture. It's bi-weekly, hosted by a frequent guest and friend of the show, Make It Plain, the Reverend Irene Monroe and the Reverend Emmett G. Price III. Both of these reverends, these revs, hail from different Black faith perspectives, different generations, different parts of the country, and even different sexual orientations. Yet they come together to talk about all the issues of the day in a very different way. You'll enjoy it. Listen to the All Revved Up podcast wherever you get your podcast, and we'll take a break and come right back with more MIP. But Senator Tim Scott would say America's not a racist country, and Plessy was 125 years ago. There's no more segregation. That Brown reversed that. What would you say to that? So I would say that slavery, for the most part, ended with the 13th Amendment. Unfortunately, racism did not. And so I think it's very important to disconnect the two. And it would have been great right after the Plessy decision and, and right after the end of the Civil War, we had a, a time in our history that we really don't illuminate a lot, which is the 14 year period of reconstruction. 
And actually, that's when we got the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments. Those are when those amendments were passed that ultimately the 14th Amendment, which was at the issue under consideration and the Plessy case. Now, during that period, that is when we had more African-Americans being in elected positions in state levels. We had historically black colleges and universities, more establishment of HBCUs and educational opportunities. Had we stayed on that path right during that reconstruction period where we really were moving toward a more equal society and undoing the legacy of slavery, we would be like, much more likely be in a different place today. But unfortunately, the reconstruction period did not last. And then we have rulings that come um, like Plessy. So now fast forwarding about the Brown case. Yes, the Brown case, which was decided, of course, in 1954, but then with all deliberate speed became very slow. And so it really, you know, you're not even seeing until the early 1970s where we really see because you had the, the massive resistance that happened to Brown. So when we really think about these issues and then we look at well, what happens in day to day society. So we still see vast inequities in any public policy area or domain that you want to look at, whether we're talking about education, criminal justice, eviction rates, housing. There have been a number of paired studies where individuals are given the same set of credentials and are uh, go to get a housing loan or to try to rent a home or rent an apartment. And they were given the exact same packages. And we see disparities in terms of mortgage rates that people are, are given, the extent to which they receive a loan and the conditions and interest rate under which they have on which that loan was received. So no matter how you cut it, the legacy of Plessy is still very much and the remnants of that are very much alive today, even though we have had many of the progressive decisions that came with Brown and the civil rights movement and all those things. But we are that historical context is still there. All right. So you just validated me. See, but but you have the degrees and the deanship and the doctorate. But see, when I say that kind of stuff, our enemies say, well, Mark's just making that up and he's just being radical. But what Dr. Gooden has done and thank God she's in the classroom to teach people and help them understand that just because Plessy versus Ferguson is not on the books de jure, the culture, the attitudes that continue to exist in America and perpetuate a reality of, of segregation is still de facto, correct? Absolutely. And you're giving me far too much credit, Reverend Thompson, because <laughs> just because I say it, you say it, whoever says it, it's not necessarily going to be accepted. But the truth of the matter is we all have to do our part to try to increase and enhance understanding of reality and what reality means relative to racial equity in the United States. And, and what is most disturbing as, as you describe this, it's almost worse than it being codified, Dr. Gooden. I mean, if you, if you say something's a law, that's what it is. But for something to no longer be a law and yet for it to naturally and still organically manifest in terms of society and the uh, uh, lack of application of equity. I mean, it's it's like it's in, in American culture and American jurisprudence. And now we're talking about in this pandemic moment in, in, in the medical field, it's like it's just natural and born. That's just the way it is. And that's, to me, uh, even more troubling. You know, I agree with you. I think one of the things, you know, we've talked about this pandemic and, and certainly has been a hor horrific experience and a lot of lives have been lost. 
But there have also been a lot of silver linings relative to equity that if we were to keep some of these practices, again, this is a moment and an opportunity, just like I talk about that moment of, of reconstruction where some of the things that have been implemented, we could retain. So I'll use my own field of higher education, GRE scores, SAT scores. We've known for years that these are biased and there's been a reluctance to eliminate these scores and these tests, these as a measure of qualification and admissions into higher education. But what happened? As a result of the pandemic, many universities, almost all, waived the standardized test requirement because students couldn't even get in to take the test. Okay. And so what are we going to do now as hopefully we come to the end of this pandemic in the, the months to come? Or are we going to go back and say, well, let's, let's put these standardized test requirements back into place? Or are we going to say, hey, you know, this was an opportunity that we could provide equal access and that we could get rid of a practice that we know has implicit bias and we've, we've gotten rid of it for a moment. Um, so part of the problem that we have to overcome in this country is that moving from having episodic justice to having systemic justice. What you describe, you know, Reverend Barber and I, kind of co-preached the same sermon about reconstruction and then what it accomplished. Mm -hmm. And then the period immediately after Dr. Gooden, which was a reclamation by the white mm -hmm. supremacists, Andrew Johnson pulls back the troops. And we've considered, in fact, um, I was talking with Dr. Peniel Joseph down University of Texas at Austin. He's doing a book on the third reconstruction, as a matter of fact. And how you write is episodic. We'll, we'll have these good things happen. But then there's this backlash or white lash, if you will. And we see it most recently with Trump in 2016 and and and, and January 6th. So I, I think that's the crux of the matter. Um, that's why Plessy versus Ferguson and all these other things and, and uh, uh, a reclamation. That's why that stuff lingers, because it keeps rearing its its ugly head. What would you suggest? Uh, and I know you're focused in Virginia, but not just in Virginia, but do you have any guidance for others who might be listening in other jurisdictions to see what can be done in terms of, because we're not finished vaccinating everyone. It, it's, it shouldn't be too late to make the adjustments to bring about more equity. Have you been looking at ways to try to deal with that and implement more equity? Yes, absolutely. So part of it is dealing with the understanding what are some of the issues. And of course, it's multifaceted. Sometimes it's an issue of access. Sometimes it's an issue of knowledge and education around the vaccine. Sometimes it's really being able to address those very salient issues in terms of trust. I mean, I think it's it's a, a reasonable question for someone to say, what is it that you want to stick into my shoulder and into my arm? And to be able to answer those questions for individuals. I also think it's an opportunity. One of the things that we've seen is that people who are most likely to get vaccinated are those who live in a home where someone has been vaccinated or they know someone who has been vaccinated. So I think that one of the things that we can also do as a community is to really reach out within our own families and encourage individuals that we know who might be on the fence to say, hey, no, you know, especially now because we're getting ready to hit a tipping point in which the supply of vaccinations is going to exceed the demand. And so I think this is where having involvement from our churches, from our fraternities and sororities, word of mouth is still a very powerful resource. And I think we need to capitalize on that within the African-American community. Yeah, um, um, most certainly. More MIP after this message. 
and and even on the hesitancy and what you what what you share with us about our hesitancy percentages as African Americans not being any more than anyone else's, in fact, less than rural whites. We know there's a lot of disinformation. Our community is targeted for disinformation more than any other community on mm -hmm. social media. And so, you know, I've even been hearing lately this thing, and, and you can never you can never tell who's saying these things, where it's coming from. Well, they want to give the black community the bad vaccine, which is the Johnson. That was the first. And then it wasn't helped a few weeks ago when they had to pause the Johnson. Lord have mercy. But you're right. I mean, I, I think we need to figure out ways um, to deal with this. And frankly, I don't see a lot of elected officials, public policy spokespersons talking about this as emphatically as you are. And that's troubling, too. I mean, more people need to understand your research and what you're saying and acknowledge there's a disparity for us that should not be. And we should be higher up in the front of the line. Don't we need that, too? We do. And again, we can't have a data driven approach that's only data driven until the data makes us uncomfortable and then we don't want to drive to the results. And that is that's a really important piece because, you know, if we're going to follow the evidence and if we're going to follow the pattern, the unfortunate pattern that we've seen in terms of loss of life relative to the coronavirus, then we have to pull that thread all the way through. Yeah, we yeah. can't skip segments and populations just because it makes us uncomfortable or just because there's not the political will to implement it. We need to have the same amount of political will to implement to vaccinate black and brown communities as we did to vaccinate the elderly, as we did to uh, vaccinate those in long term care facilities, as we did to vaccinate those who are on the front lines. We need to have that same amount of political will and uh, will among us as individuals. Are decision makers in Virginia listening to your counsel in terms of addressing this? I will have to say we have got an extraordinary team in, in Virginia. Janice Underwood, who is um, in the governor's cabinet and works on in diversity, inclusion and equity issues, as well as Curtis Brown, who is the director of the Virginia Department of Emergency Management. They have convened a health equity task force and their work had their, this task force and the work that this task force has done has really been very pivotal and instrumental in terms of really pushing forward the envelope. Now, again, no, there's not perfect implementation anywhere, but I do think that and I do appreciate and have tremendous respect for the hard work that they've been doing on this day in and day out. So what are we going to do besides being on this show? What else can we do to raise your national profile? Because I think all jurisdictions need to hear what you have to say. Well, I think you're being very <laughs> kind, uh, but I, I'm sure many people may not agree with that. But again, <laughs> I think that one of the things that we have to do is um, to continue to, and, and I think this is great what you do, make it plain, continue to make it plain about what we're seeing in terms of disparities, continue to make it plain in terms of systemic racism and what, it, what are the implications of that and continue to move the ball forward and to just have a relentless commitment to achieving the ideals of our constitution about all people being created equal and making sure that there's liberty and justice for all. Folks, this this uh, latest publication, Plessy versus Ferguson and Legacy of Separated but Equal After 225 Years, is available from what I can see uh, and open access for you to read and see uh, at russellsage.org. Uh, so we want to invite you to take a look at it and educate yourself and uh, educate others um, and help Dr. Gooden and others seek accountability 
when it comes to and transparency when it comes to vaccination distribution i'd be remiss your your area being equity if i did not ask you how you felt or how you feel about biden's first hundred days his speech to the joint session mm -hmm. of congress some are giving him very high marks in terms of addressing equity are you feeling optimistic about that is it moving in the right direction just what are your general thoughts about all of that well, I certainly think it, it, the question of are we moving in the right direction, uh, my assessment of that would be yes. Certainly, we have not gotten to the destination, but we are moving in the right direction. I do think that we have to give credit where credit is due in terms of where we are 100 days in compared to where we were 100 days ago. And that is that there we have been making a lot of progress. Um, not only in terms of vaccination availability, but in terms of resources that are coming into our communities. But we have, you know, make no mistake about it, we have a lot of work to do. There are still thousands of students that we do not know what they have been doing in the pandemic relative to education and what their educational experience has been. And so it's one of these things where I think when we get out of the cover, from under the cover of the coronavirus, my fear is that we're going to see some very, very concerning and troubling inequities along race, racial lines, as we have historically seen, that were already there, but have even just become much more pronounced. And so then the question is going to become, how are we going to have those resources? What resources are going to be available? Right. How are we going to get ahead of that and uh, really stop this hemorrhaging that we're seeing relative to, to the disparities, uh, enhancing the disparities that were there prior to COVID? I, I would accuse you of having listened to one of my earlier shows. I had the uh, uh, president of the American Federation of Teachers, who's a regular guest here. Mm. And we talked about that and and schools reopening and what resources mm. they need to have. And, and we all know in our time as adults, every school had its own nurse. Mm -hmm. uh, but now, obviously, we need more than that, you know, in terms of, of dealing with schools and families that have been affected, traumatized, displaced. A lack of resources. Everybody doesn't have the digital resources that you and I have. So you're absolutely right. So we've got to we've got to look at all that. That that creates its own lack of equity and disparity. This has been an amazing conversation, folks. We invite you to go to RussellSage.org and read the publication Plessy versus Ferguson and the Legacy of Separate but Equal after 125 years it must be providential too while we were conducting this interview my phone rang as it rang, rang as it always does and uh, congresswoman sheila jackson lee was just calling me we're working very closely on hr 40 and okay. that's the argument as you know um mm -hmm. not just enslavement dr Gooden, but the vestiges of Absolutely. enslavement and and you have made a profound case in fact my wheels were turning as you were talking we need to hear from more people like you because most people don't think of the the ongoing relevance of Plessy versus Ferguson, but just like all of these documents and decrees and codifications, they became living documents. They live with us. The Second Amendment is living with us. And we're seeing the, Lord knows you're in Virginia, we're seeing the manifestation of a 200 some odd year old amendment. I mean, it's, it's living. And uh, so obviously separate but equal lives as well. This is excellent work. And we commend you for this work and uh, uh, so thankful for your contribution. OK, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Reverend Thompson. Keep on keeping on. All right. You too. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five star rating and please do spread the word.
Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.